0: All right, good morning. Here we are. Here we are. Another Sunday morning we'll be in the book of Colossians. And last time, about a month ago, we started in chapter 3. So we are we had broken into the second half of, of Paul's letter. And we covered verses 1 through 4 and this morning we're going to continue on and and our text this morning is going to be verses 5 through 8 in chapter 3 of Colossians. And if you're using a Blue Bible we provide. It's on page 984. All right, so for a little review in this chapter, Paul has begun to instruct the Colossians towards true devotion to God, which essentially is Christ-centered living. True devotion to God is Christ-centered living. Living. Back in chapter 2, Paul had exhorted the Colossians to keep walking in Christ. Keep walking in Christ, to remain rooted in him and to continue being built up in him. So that that primary command was to keep walking in Christ. That's what he exhorted them to do. And in chapter 3, he's begun to show them how they are to be pursuing and accomplishing this goal. So he says, keep walking in Christ, and, and so we hear that primary command, and we have maybe an understanding of what that involves. We understand that it is Christ-centered living, devotion to Christ, but now he's giving it specifics. He's showing us how exactly you are to do this. And back in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 3, Paul exhorted the Colossians to seek and to set their minds on things that are above rather than things that are on earth. In other words, we're to be continually putting our earthly lives in heavenly perspective and living accordingly. We're to be striving for the things that are important to God. The things that he delights in and that are of value beyond this this present age in which we live. Things that are of eternal importance, eternal value. We're to live in this world in light of the world to come. That is, in light of Christ's coming kingdom, of which, if you are in Christ, you have been made a citizen. That's your future home. It awaits you. We're Christ's people, bought with his blood, redeemed by him. We are his people. He is our life. Therefore, we're to to orient our lives to where he is now. And where is he? What did Paul say? He's in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God in the throne room of heaven. And we're to live in a manner worthy of him, desiring to please him in every way. Christ-centered living. So starting in verse 5, Paul gets more specific in his exhortations to the Colossians, to Christians, those who are in Christ. He provides us with, with more details as to what true, faithful, Spirit-empowered Christian living looks like. Thankfully, he doesn't just say, seek the things that are above and, and set your minds on them. God be with you. And leave it there. He goes on. He doesn't end with this. He, he begins with it as a general guiding principle for Christian living. Yes, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. A general guiding principle for us, indeed. But Paul goes on to direct us towards specific practices and activities that ought to characterize our lives here and now in light of our salvation and newness of life in Christ. As I've said before, what we won't see in any of Paul's exhortations is a call for Christians to observe Religious rituals and ceremonies, or even dietary regulations, as if those things had any spiritual power or value in them. We won't see a call for that. We won't see him call you to. This is what Christ-centered living looks like, and it's it's got a lot of religiosity. It doesn't. We also won't see call. Uh, we won't see Paul call for Christians to seek out mystical experiences, as if if we need to just be totally aloof and, and to seek out some kind of spiritual mystical experience, and that really is what it means to be setting my mind on things above and have a spiritually empowered life. What we will see is a call for Christians to live in light of the reality that they have been delivered from the domain of darkness and indeed made alive in Christ. We are to live as those who are new creations in Christ, truly new creations in Christ. We saw this clearly at the beginning of chapter 3 where Paul began this this series of exhortations on Christian living. He wrote to the church, the Colossian church, be seeking the things that are above where Christ is and setting your minds on these things because you are have been spiritually raised with Christ to newness of life. The old you is dead. That is, you, as a slave to sin and a hardened rebel against God, died. And now, as one who has been made spiritually alive and who has been reconciled to God, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You are a new creation. He, Christ, is your life. And Paul says, when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Paul then goes on to say, in verses 5 through 8, read along. He goes on to say, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth if you have been born again through faith in Christ, then you not only have been freed from the penalty of sin, pardoned for your sin, freed from that that eternal penalty, penalty, you have been freed from the power of sin, meaning that you're no longer a slave to it, if indeed you've been born again, if you are truly saved, you've been released from sin's power. But, Having received the Holy Spirit and having been born again, you have been empowered and equipped to live a holy life that is pleasing to the Lord, and it is to that which you have been called, freed from sin's penalty, freed from sin's power, and now equipped to live a life worthy of the Lord, a life that is pleasing to him. That is your calling. However, the presence of sin still remains in you. Christ paid its penalty for us. He broke its power over us. But its presence remains with us because although we've been given a new spirit, we still live in this fallen world and these these fallen bodies. When our bodies are glorified at the appearing of Christ, we will be completely perfected, Scripture says. We will appear with him in glory. We receive a resurrection like his, and there will be no more presence of sin within us. But until then, sin hangs on. It hangs on, and our bodies remain in a state of corruption. You've been born again. You've been made new on the inside. But you still occupy this fallen body and live in this fallen world. Sin is around. Sin remains. It's hanging on. The reality we face here and now is that our flesh is weak. And sin is still at work. It's actively working. It's no longer our master. But its unending desire is to to have us back in its grip. And if we leave it unchecked, we'll find ourselves allowing it to have its way. Paul warned in his letter to the Christians in Rome, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. See, before God saved you, you were dead in your sins. Sin indeed did reign in you. It reigned over you. You had no choice. You were a slave to it, and indeed you desired it. But God, causing you to be born again, has liberated you from that tyranny. But yet, you, with sin still present, can allow it to have its way. It's no longer your master, but you can give it rain. Paul warns, don't let it rain to make you obey its passions. It's still a threat. So when we're passive towards our sin, if we're, if we're passive towards our own sin, we permit it to reign free, to grow stronger, and ultimately to take over and wreak havoc in our lives. So praise God that we, we can be justified by faith alone in Christ alone, receive forgiveness, have the hope of glory, and be changed from within. But if we, don't, if we are passive towards the very sin which enslaved us before, There will be much destruction it will bring into our lives, even though we've been redeemed. So what are we to do then? Paul says in verse 5, what we are to do. Put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death what is earthly in you. That is, put to death that which is in you that runs contrary to the things that are above, as he had mentioned, where Christ is. We just set our minds on things above, seek the things above. So we need to put to death what is earthly in us, that which is contrary to Christ, contrary to his kingdom, contrary to his righteousness. If you are to be seeking and setting your mind on Christ and his coming kingdom and thus living for his glory according to his purposes and in subjection to his will, Then you must be killing your sin. We're in the midst of a a cosmic conflict that's been going on since nearly the beginning of creation and will continue until Christ, who secured victory at the cross, returns in glory and finally puts an end to it. What happened to us when God saved us is that we were brought over to the right side of that conflict. As Paul said back in chapter 1 to the Colossians, the Father delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So, we who are in Christ, we who once were dead in sin and at war with God in rebellion, we now, through Christ, are alive in God and at war with sin. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He then clarifies what he's referring to by providing a list of sins. Paul's command tells us what kind of list this is, does it not? The command is put to death what is earthly in you, and he gives us this list. This is a kill list. This is a search and destroy list. I was thinking of the title being the Christian's kill list, but I don't know. That would probably be a little too much. But that is what it is. These are the things that you are to be putting to death. It's a list that helps us rightly identify and target our enemy, that is, sin. Paul's not simply saying that we should avoid these things. I mean, indeed we should, but but that is not what he's only saying. He's saying that we should immediately and decisively target them and take them out. One commentator puts it this way. He writes, we are not simply to suppress or control evil acts and attitudes. We are to wipe them out, completely exterminate the old way of life. We must be putting sin to death if we are to grow in holiness and live in a manner worthy of the Lord. And again, as we keep reading in chapter 3, we're going to see the kind of righteousness and godliness we are to put on, that we are to practice. But before you can rightly do that, you have to kill and put off and put away the unrighteousness, the sin that runs contrary to that. So it's a both and, and we start by attacking sin. Now, Paul gives this command, put to death what is earthly in you, and then he gives a list of examples of the kinds of earthly things he's referring to. So what does he say? Sexual immorality, impurity passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Then in in verses 6 and 7, he he reasons with the Colossians. And then in verse 8, he reinforces his command with a second command. You must put away, that is, discard or rid yourselves of all such things. That is, the things that are earthly in you. And he gives another list of examples of earthly things that Christians should be determined to eliminate from their lives. And this list includes anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. So we see the primary command for us in verse 5. Now I want us to consider the two lists that Paul gives concerning what is earthly in us. We're going to go a little out of order because as we read the passage, we see that what is earthly in you is defined by that first list, but also by the second one, all such things. So I want us to look at these lists Paul's giving, and these things that he lists that we are to eliminate from our own lives, the things that we must put to death and put away. After that, we'll consider Paul's reasoning, verses 6 and 7, so that's the plan. Now we have these two lists detailing the earthly ways we are to eliminate The first list focuses on the issue of what? Sexual sin. And the second list focuses on the issue of sinful anger. Again, if you look at them closely, they're categories, they're they're groupings of, of sins that are all connected. So one deals with the issue of sexual sin, and the second list dealing with the issue of sinful anger. What the vices in both of these lists have in common is that they, like all sin, are fueled by pride, a love and worship of self above all else. Now, we all naturally love ourselves. You nat- nobody has to tell you when you come into this world how to love yourself or to love yourself. You naturally do that. And this is seen in the fact that we indeed look to our own interests, we, uh, we are able, as we are able, we, we feed ourselves, we clothe ourselves, we protect ourselves, we tend to our health and our hygiene and our happiness. We naturally love ourselves. However, as God's creatures, and not only that, but as those who bear the image of God, we're essentially commanded to love God and to love others as we do ourselves. It's in doing these things that we reflect the likeness of God and glorify God that our love would extend out to him and to others. Jesus said these are the greatest commands. Everything's summed up in these commands. Sin, however leads us to rebel against these essential commands and to make self-love supreme. Sin drives your affections inward. Sin says, you're the center of the universe. Your personal happiness, comfort, pleasure, security, and fulfillment are ultimately all that matters in this life. It's all about you. Now let's look more closely at the first list then. So we see sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. All of these sins essentially involve seeing people only as a means to getting what you want. Wouldn't you agree? you look at that list, it all is related to seeing other people simply as means to get what you want. The first sin Paul lists is sexual immorality, which is any form of sexual relations outside of the exclusive marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Everything outside of that is sexual immorality. It's outside of of God's design, it is rebellion against Him, it is perversion. The Greek word behind the next word, impurity, means uncleanness or filthiness, which in this context would be specifically referring to other forms of shameful conduct, indecency, or vulgarity outside of direct acts of sexual immorality. So it's, it's all these things. You know, activities you participate in, what you look at, the kind of Things you allow yourself to listen to can make you impure. It's not just the direct acts. And then, passion and evil desire, these are synonymous, both referring here to unrestrained longing and craving for sinful sexual indulgence. Passion, desire, Then lastly, Paul lists covetousness. It's very general. That's very broad. And essentially, covetousness is the general desire to always have more for yourself. Always have more. To never be satisfied. Now I want you to notice the order in which Paul has listed these sins. He begins with external sins. And he ends with the internal ones. In other words, there's there's a progression from the outward sinful behavior to the inner sinful thoughts. And I would say the order here is intentional and it's instructive. It shows us how we can effectively put our sin to death. Not in the sense that we eliminate its very presence in us, as we said, but Put it to death in the sense that we defeat and kill it on a daily basis so that it does not gain a foothold in our lives where it could be allowed to reign again and do its damage. So if we are to put sin to death, then we are to attack it, in other words, all the way to its roots. All the way to the roots. So how do you effectively stamp out or put to death sexual immorality and impurity in your life. How do you do that? You must attack the sinful longings and cravings of your heart. And to have success in putting those to death, evil desire, you must attack the root sin that is behind even those. And that's the general sin of covetousness. You see? Covetousness is basically a lack of contentment. It's a lack of contentment. It's the attitude that you must always have more. That what you have is never good enough. It's the thought that nothing should be held back from you. Coveting is putting possessions, power, prestige, and or pleasure in the place of God. It is is seeing them as being more valuable and thus more desirable than all else. Thus, Paul says, What? That it is, therefore, idolatry. It's idolatry. Covetousness leads one to disregard not only the interests of others, but also the rights of others. One commentator puts it this way. He says, covetousness is the arrogant and ruthless assumption that all other persons and things exist for one's own benefit. It's covetousness that fuels the sinful desires and passions that move one to engage in impurity and immorality. We are to put it to death then. If all we do is clean up the outside... If all we do is attack the overt sins in our life, then we won't make real advances over sin in our life to the point that we are experiencing victory. It's like trying to stop an ant invasion in your home by continually squishing the ants that you see. I have a beef with them. They'll just keep coming and coming until you take the fight all the way to where they live, however you might go about doing that, or it's like cutting down weeds in your yard unless you intact them at the roots, those keep popping up, popping up, so since you came to Christ, you understand that, that these things, I'm going to put off my old sinful ways, the stuff that used to enslave me, that I was bound to, I understand it is unrighteousness, it is evil in God's eyes, I need to put it off. And if all you do is say, I'm going to stop committing these acts, I'm going to, whatever it may be, let's say it's pornography, I'm going to throw the computer out. That's good. That's good. But you know what? That struggle will not die down at all. It'll be just as strong. You'll have no victory unless you are going to the root of these problems. They'll just keep popping up. The same ones, or they'll pop up in different areas. The same issue. Sinful passion, evil desire, all because you are being fueled by this covetousness. You are not content with what you have. You want more. You want nothing held back from you. So Paul says, put to death all forms of sexual sin in your life. And you do this by attacking it all the way to the root of covetousness. How do you kill covetousness? You kill it by replacing it with, what is it, a lack of? Contentment, right? Replace it with contentment. Contentment's the antidote. It's found in knowing and trusting God. That's where you find contentment. Trusting in his word that sin kills and destroys. Actually believing that. Trusting that there are many things you indeed ought not to have. Trusting that there are many things that you don't have because it's for your own good. Contentment. Also, as we'll see Paul say later in this chapter, you must put on above all else, you must put on love. And we'll get, we'll get there later in chapter 3. He says, you must put on love above all else, that is, love for others. And think about it. In this list, we have sins that basically view people simply as the means to get what one wants. But this is not how love works. Love sacrificially seeks the good of others. So if in our thoughts and deeds we are loving others, then we will be stamping out desires and actions that seek to violate them. Now we're going to look at the second list. And again, Paul deals with these, these issues, and, and we're, not, we're only going to address them in a general way because the point is the main command, which is all these kinds of things we are to be putting to death, and the point Paul is stressing is that we are to do it comprehensively, holistically, not just the external things, but to tack them all the way at the root, the issues of our heart. So in this second list, which we find in verse 8, Paul focuses on the issue of sinful anger, sinful anger. While the first list contains the kinds of sins that view people only as the means to getting what one wants, well, this list contains the kinds of sins that view people only as obstacles to getting what one wants. You stand in the way of my indulgence. You stand in the way of my personal happiness. I mean, that's where sinful anger comes from whatever the circumstances might be. As with the first list, the ultimate root of these sins is pride and self-love. Self is supreme, that perspective. In this list, however, Paul, what do you see? He reverses the order, doesn't he? He reverses the order and he moves from the internal sins to their external manifestations. And again, the idea is that if our sins to be put to death and put away, then we must, we must attack it. We must attack the underlying problems rather than just the outward manifestations. What's giving rise to this overt sin in your life? There are underlying problems that need to be addressed. These are issues of the heart. That's where we take the fight. Paul begins the list with anger and wrath, which in this context refer to unrighteous anger. And wrath. Again, anger, I mean, in and of itself, it's an emotion. There is such thing as righteous anger, but, well, most of the times, our anger is not righteous anger. So Paul is dealing with unrighteous anger and wrath. These words, anger and wrath, are, they are synonymous. They both refer to strong or intense displeasure. And following these is malice, which is having ill will towards others and desiring to inflict harm on them. So intense displeasure, and then there is malice, which is ill will towards others and a desire to actually inflict harm on them. And next on the list, then, we move outward. Next on the list is slander. And the Greek word lying behind this is blasphemia, blasphemy, which when used in reference to people, refers to any kind of defamatory or derogatory speech. Give him a piece of your mind, let him have it. Malice taking form in slander. Then Paul mentions obscene talk, which in this context would specifically be the coloring and intensifying of one's slanderous speech with coarse and filthy language. I'm not just going to let them have it. I'm going to let them know how much I want to let them have it. Coarse and filthy language. So the progression we see in this list is that sinful anger and wrath, when they rise up, if they are left unchecked, they will breed malice and malice often erupts out of the mouth in the form of slander and obscenities. It's not the only outward manifestation of sinful or wrath, but you see Paul is just showing what is the typical manifestation, manifestation of it. And again, we're seeing how this sin works itself out. So if we are to put to death and put away what is earthly in us, then we must do more Here as well, we must do more than attack the outward problem. We must do more than just hold our tongues and refrain from blowing up at people. I mean, indeed, you should be slow to speak, slow to anger, control your tongue. There's there's wisdom in that. That is wisdom. That is good. But if that's all you focus on doing, you are not attacking the real problem that underlies it. We must be attacking sinful anger when it rises up in our hearts closing the door right here isn't enough if we are to be putting to death the issue of sinful anger in our hearts anger must not be given room to hang around in you you'll get angry you will i mean it'll happen but what do you do you stamp it out think of it as a a warning flag. warning warning something's wrong you're upset and think about why am i upset I mean, wisdom would tell us, slow to anger. wait a minute, wait a minute. Why am I angry in this moment? You know what most of the times it is? The problem's you. Problem is, I've been so self-focused and loving myself so much that now I see any inconvenience, any person who crosses me, they are an obstacle to the way of my happiness, my pleasantness right now. So, Much of our anger indeed is being focused on ourselves too much, really, so that anything or anyone that disrupts our personal activity or challenges us in a a way that is seen uh, or challenges us, anything and anyone that does that, we, we see them at least in that moment as the enemy. Therefore, if we're to be putting away sinful anger, we must be replacing it with something. Attack it where it is and replace it with something. And here's how we do it what we need to replace it with, we replace it with humility. Humility. We must think less of ourselves and more of those around us. We, again, this points to the fact that uh, we must put on love above all else. So again, if I'm to clothe myself hum- with humility, I'm not going to be so focused on myself anymore. I'm actually going to be considerate of others. And essentially, that is what love calls us to do. It is 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 not only looking to your own interests, but also looking to the interests of others. We must put on love. For if we are loving others, then we're considering their interests even above our own. Even above our own. And we then don't view others as an, ob- as an obstacle to get what we want anymore. Instead, we, we view others as those whose good we don't that we don't want to be an obstacle to. Does that make sense? See, all these issues of anger towards others sinful anger is seeing them as an obstacle to getting what you want but if you actually are loving them if you're doing what Christ commands you to do right commands us to do what do you say the greatest commandment is that we love one another it is the greatest commandment if we are doing that they're no longer an obstacle to us but we are desiring their good and we don't want to be an obstacle to it anger has no room with that kind of thinking it has no place with that kind of thinking So we've seen the kinds of earthliness within us that we're to put to death and put away since our old earthly selves have died and since we now have everlasting life and the future hope of glory in Christ who himself is glorified and exalted in heaven. That's the whole point Paul made in those first four verses in chapter 3. But now he adds to this reasoning. He he gives additional reasoning in verses 6 and 7 for his command to put to death what is earthly in us. Look at verse 6. He gives the command, he gives the examples, and then he reasons this way. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So why do you think Paul gives such an urgent command? Why, Why put to death what is earthly in you? Why such urgency? Why must sin be put to death? Why must it not be tolerated at all and be treated instead as a great enemy? Because that's how God views it. And ultimately, he's going to pour out the full fury of his righteous wrath upon the world because of it. That is what God's going to do. God hates sin. Therefore, we ought to hate sin as well, have the same reaction to it, the sin within us, have the same reaction to it as God does. Sin is an offense to his righteousness. Sin is antithetical to his goodness. It produces corruption and death. Therefore, we should never approve of it. We should never treat it lightly. We should never excuse it. We should never ignore it in our lives. We must hate it as God hates it. Paul gives the only appropriate course of action then for Christians concerning their sin would have put it to death. We hate it. It is an enemy. The wrath of God is coming on account of such earthly ways, Paul says, and then he adds in verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. This is a reminder of the role that sin had in our lives before God mercifully and graciously saved us. It was our master. It ruled over us. We regularly practice it because we indeed were in bondage to it. We were slaves to it. As Paul wrote in his letter to Titus, looking back on who we once were before God stepped in and rescued us, from our slavery to sin. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What a life. What changed? God saved us. He made us alive. We were dead in sin. He made us alive. He forgave our sin, and He united us to His Son so that we now share in His life. He delivered us from the domain, the tyrannical rule of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We've been liberated then from the enslaving power of sin, and with the Lord's help, we will be putting sin to death. These things used to own you. They used to keep you in bondage. They used to wreak havoc in your life. God's rescued, rescued you out of them. Why would you tolerate them in your life? Why would you tolerate them in yourself any longer? There's a, there's a wonderful illustration, or at least a uh, emphasizing of this point by uh, a commentator, a preacher, I wanted to share with you. He, on this idea that these things we were to put to death, they were the things that once held us in their grip that led to much corruption and destruction in our lives. But we've been liberated, and there's the call to put them off now, put them all away. This is the past. We're to live now in the present as those who truly have been liberated from these things. Here's what he says, kind of picking up on this idea. Christian, what have you to do with sin? Has it not cost you enough already? Burnt child, will you play with the fire? What, when you have already been between the jaws of the lion, will you step a second time into his den? Have you not had enough of the old serpent? Did he not poison all your veins once? And will you play upon the whole of the asp? And put your hand on the cockatrice's den a second time. That's a mythical beast. Oh, be not so mad, so foolish. Did sin ever yield you real pleasure? And I would say real, true, and lasting delight and happiness. Did you find solid satisfaction in it? If so... Go back to your old drudgery and wear the chain again if it delights you. But inasmuch as sin never gave you what it promised to bestow, but deluded you with lies, be not a second time snared by the old fowler. Be free and let the remembrance of your ancient bondage forbid you to enter the net again. That's a way to put it. And before we end, I want us to look at one important word in this verse that we must not gloss over in verse 7. It's the word once. Once. Paul says, you too once walked in these things these earthly ways, these sins. That is, sin once defined you because it once enslaved you. It once had dominion over you, but if you are in Christ, not anymore. God made you alive so that you would be reconciled to him through faith in his Son, in whom you've received forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of God that comes through faith, You've been delivered from sin's domain and freed from its tyranny. Now, that was then. That was what once was the case. Now you are under the benevolent rule of Christ. Now your life is eternally secured with Christ in God. Now you are alive in him and empowered by him to walk in newness of life, to walk in a manner worthy of him, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. That is what he called you to do. And the first step in leading this new redeemed life is putting to death and putting away the sin that characterized our old condemned life. We who were once dead in sin and at war with God are now through Christ alive in God and at War with sin. Put it to death. Put it away so that your life may reflect the glory of Christ that indeed is in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word in reminding us of your amazing grace, your glorious work of salvation the fact that you stepped into our lives and intervened when we were completely helpless in bondage and to our own sin and corruption and living in rebellion against you, destined only for wrath, that you stepped in, Father, and gave us life. You made us alive. You reconciled us to yourself, and you did this through the work of your Son, who came into the world and paid that penalty that we deserved for our sins. He took the wrath for us in our place, and he is risen, and he gives life to us now. He is our life. Lord Jesus, we have newness of life in you. Our future is with you. Our hope is in you. We pray that we might indeed live lives worthy of you, that we would work out our salvation, work out these realities that are true of those of us who have repented of sin and placed our faith in you, have believed the gospel, that we receive righteousness freely as a gift through faith in you, and that we indeed have been liberated from that sin. And Lord Jesus, we pray for those who may even profess to be your disciples, who may profess to believe, but who are still indeed in bondage to sin, who, where there's real, no real power of God in their lives, where sin still, sin still enslaves them. Lord, we pray that they would humble themselves and confess that they indeed are in bondage and that their profession is merely just that and there's no power behind it and that they would truly look to you in faith and cry out for your deliverance to see their need as it really is, their helplessness, and that they might find forgiveness and and freedom in you, that you might save them. Lord, we pray for them. And Lord, we also, uh, just as a church, we pray that we collectively would be doing the work that you've been calling us to, the work of putting sin to death, knowing that it separates, it destroys, it it breeds dissension, it divides, and you've called us to be united people, to love one another, and we pray that we might do so by rightly dealing with our own sin, putting it to death, but also being an encouragement to one another and actively loving one another and and helping them in this fight as well we pray that you would unify us in this in this task and that we would indeed as a result would more and more live lives that are pleasing to you and reflect your goodness and your grace and kindness and love to the world around us it's in your name we pray amen